Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, for you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Initially, I think I told you that today's message was going to be called The Cheerleaders. But as I was reading through the text again, I realized that while there was cheering, there was also great sadness. And maybe you caught it before as Jimmy read through this text, that even in the midst of the wild crowds, it talks about Jesus weeping. I want you to picture this Palm Sunday some 2,000 years ago. Early Sunday morning and Jesus is walking toward Jerusalem. He stops for just a moment and he sends two of his disciples ahead of him into a nearby village to carry out a special errand. He tells them to go get a colt that's tied there, one that has never been ridden before. And he says, if anybody asks about it, like, why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it. I kind of wonder if those two disciples might not have wondered about what Jesus told them to do. Because none of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, ever mention Jesus riding an animal at any other time. I mean, Jesus, if you follow his path, must have walked hundreds and hundreds of miles back and forth in this country we call the Holy Land. But never any mention of him riding anywhere other than taking a boat across the Sea of Galilee. So it must have been kind of a strange command on what we call Palm Sunday. And to have him tell them the exact words that it takes to get that donkey is also kind of eerie. See, it's obvious that Jesus knew what he was doing that day. He knew what he was going to face when he got into the city of Jerusalem. So his decision to go there must have been an extremely difficult one. In fact, maybe the most difficult decision Jesus had to make. And on top of that, he's riding into the city on a donkey rather than walk into it like he had done so often before. It must have been a difficult decision because being on the back of that donkey was a public declaration that he was a king. You see, in those days uh, of times of war, the conqueror would ride into town on this big, white, prancing stallion. But in times of peace, the king would come riding in to that gate on a donkey to symbolize that peace prevailed. So for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem that day, he was declaring himself to be what? The king. But the king of peace. The question is, how would people respond to that? Seeing this guy that we, he knew, they knew was a rabbi, that he was a Galilean, that he was a carpenter's son, how would they react to that? Would they recognize that his kingdom was not of this world? That it was a spiritual kingdom and that he was a spiritual king? And I would say, I'd answer that question by saying, small chance, because he had been teaching them now for three and a half years. And even his closest people, the disciples, still didn't quite get it. Now, maybe some of the people that day would have greeted Jesus with laughter. 
I mean, maybe they would have kind of had these smirky little smiles on their face uh, at what Jesus was doing. I mean, after all, when you stop and think about it, it is kind of a, a, a funny picture. A carpenter on the back of a donkey claiming to be gay. Some people, I'm sure, would think, this guy's nuts. I mean, he's a lunatic. He's living in a fantasy world. I mean, imagine that he's a king. Other people that day would have greeted him with out-and-out anger, upset that he would dare ride into Jerusalem. This was arrogance, and this was blasphemy against God to say that he was the Messiah. Now, of course, there were a lot of people that were really happy that day. They greeted him with joy. They welcomed him as an earthly king to reestablish his throne of David to overthrow this evil, wicked, bad, and nasty empire of Rome. They were eager, ready, and willing to put a crown on his head. I can picture that day as Jesus comes riding from the Mount of Olives that there would be people in that crowd that he had healed. There may have been some of those thousands that he had actually fed with those fish and loaves. I mean, many of these people had seen all of these miracles. They listened and they all said, this man speaks with authority. They had listened to him and their lives somehow were greatly changed. Now, Jesus knew all of this, but he knew that also right beyond the horizon was the cross. He was out there looming like some big giant monster. But Luke says that in spite of all of this, Jesus set his face steadfastly to go into Jerusalem. Nobody was going to stop him. And so on that first Palm Sunday, as we call it, Jesus rides toward the city gates. And as he does, the crowd begins to grow, and there's a festive air. After all, it is Passover time. Pilgrims from all over the known world were gathering from far and near to celebrate the greatest Jewish holiday. And I have a feeling that as he's coming down the hill, as he's coming out of Bethany, there are people who had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead in that town of Bethany, you can well imagine the little buzz in the crowd. You have people whispering, you know, did you hear the news? Did you hear the news? Lazarus, who lives in this town, was dead. And here comes this, this uh, teacher from Nazareth. And even though he's been in the grave for four days, he says, Lazarus, come out. And they unwrapped him, and he wasn't decayed or anything. And he was alive. I mean, surely only the Messiah, only the Son of God could do something like that. And I kind of pictured that that word, that buzz, kind of crawled amongst that crowd. And the crowd was growing very quickly until Jesus was ready to enter the city. Great crowds were collected on both sides of the road. They had cut down palm branches. They were waving them. They were shouting, Hosanna to the king. There was great excitement in the city. But, like I always say, there's always a but, huh? But Jesus looked at that crowd. He looked at that waiting audience. And he must have seen a strange mixture of expressions on their faces that day. I mean, there were certainly people in that crowd who looked at him with great love. I mean, maybe blind Bartimaeus, who's now, his sight was now 
returned was standing with a big smile and waving at Jesus. Or maybe Zacchaeus was in the crowd, rather than hiding up in the sycamore tree, crouched down there, a little guy in the front row, waving because he had, he had paid back his debts to society and he had made peace with his God. What about, maybe there were some lepers in the crowd that day. You know, they're standing there today and they were kind of waving to Jesus, look, look, we're okay, thank you, thank you, you're the one who did it. Do you ever stop and think that maybe Jairus' daughter was there? And she's going, hey, I was dead. He brought me back to life again. And I'm sure coming out of Bethany and maybe following along were Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were all there. Their lives reflected the love that was in their hearts for this man who had taught them so much, who had molded them and changed them. But there were also those sinister faces there that day. People who were waiting for Jesus to make a little slip-up. Waiting for Jesus to say the wrong word, just to make one mistake. I know the scribes and the Pharisees were there, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were there. Jimmy read about them in the text. They told Jesus, make everybody be quiet. Jesus said, if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. Which is Jesus saying, rock music is okay. Well, that didn't fall off of Mount Sinai. That's just what I think. But, you know, these people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, were the teachers of the law. They were the guardians of the temple. These are the people who were supposed to be spiritual leaders. But Jesus had gained so much popularity that they felt threatened. And so full of jealousy, they stood there and they watched. I think the Romans were there, too. Maybe some of them kind of halfway laughing that this goofy guy from Galilee was coming in on a donkey. I mean, what kind of a king comes on a donkey? But the Roman soldiers were also there because they feared revolt. They were watching for any sign of rebellion against Rome. They were ready, willing, and able to put down any uprising. I think Jesus realized as he listened to all of these shouts of, Hosanna, Hosanna! that it wouldn't be very long before those sinister voices would drown out those voices of love and those crying for him to be king would be shouting, crucify him. Or if they weren't shouting those words, they were kind of standing by and simply saying nothing. But now here comes Jesus descending along the road from the Mount of Olives across the brook toward the gate, crowds thronging around him, And as he did, have you ever stopped to think what the disciples were thinking? I was kind of thinking about this going through the text. I I think Judas and maybe even Simon the Zealot were probably really ecstatic that day. They were basking in this glory because these two disciples, maybe more than anyone, wanted this earthly kingdom to be restored. I can almost imagine Peter walking all proud and all puffed out, you know, listening to the cheers of the crowd, maybe just one hand on his little fishing sword at the same time in case something went wrong, maybe thinking to himself, you know, maybe giving up this fishing business was not such a bad idea after all. Maybe Thomas was there. Thomas, a little bit skeptical as he looked, wondering what all of this really meant. 
Or maybe Andrew was there. You know, Andrew, maybe overwhelmed by all of it. I mean, Andrew was the one who was used to bringing one person at a time or sometimes little groups of people to meet Jesus. And now he's going, wow, look at all of these people. Or what about James and John? Do you suppose they might have been walking down there thinking, wow, if Jesus gets crowned king, we get to sit on either side just like Mama asked him. All of those people in Jerusalem, loving faces, sinister faces, <laughs> anxious disciples, and the crowds, when suddenly the entire procession stops dead in its tracks. Kind of like rush hour traffic in Dallas. You know, one car stops. All the other cars stop, and now you've got to back up. People are probably saying, what's going on? What's going on? What's the holdup up there? You know, why don't you guys keep moving? But the people closest to Jesus can see why everything stops. And they suddenly realize that Jesus was the one who had actually initiated this backup. And then they begin maybe to see Jesus' body shake a little bit. At first, I think maybe they would have thought that Jesus was laughing. But then they saw that his face, and they realized he was not laughing. Jesus was weeping. They saw sorrow and tears. He was crying. Now, that's not unusual for Jesus to show emotion. The Bible says Jesus showed emotion over a lot of stuff. Any number of times it said Jesus looked at people with compassion. But only two times, as far as I can tell, only two times does the Bible ever say that Jesus cried. The first time, of course, was at the grave of Lazarus. When he joined Mary and Martha in weeping, it says that Jesus wept with them. He entered their grief with compassion and identified in their sorrow and their despair. But the question this morning is, why was Jesus crying now this second time? Why was he crying? <laughs> Middle of this crowd, all excited, and Jesus stops and he looks at Jerusalem and he begins to cry. It's because as he looked at this city, he saw this mixture of faces. He saw the masses of humanity crowding there and he realized the emptiness of so many lives. These people had all heard his message of peace but they still didn't really understand why he came. Let me read again from Luke 19. It says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes, the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. See, these people had eyes, but they didn't see. They had ears, but they didn't hear. They missed the whole point of the message that God had given them through Jesus. <laughs> I mean, the fact, actually, that they actually waved palm branches in the air is a good indication that they didn't really understand yet what was going on. <coughs> the reason I say that is because that's exactly 
what the people did a few hundred years before when the Maccabees overthrew the Syrian oppressors and reestablished worship in the temple. They'd already done this palm waving. And see, by waving palms, they were showing that Jesus, that they expected him to be another warlord, one who would help them overthrow the Romans. I mean, they were saying, we're really ready to put these things down and pick up our swords and go to war if you lead us. I mean, Jesus was crying, friends. I'm sure he was saying, I didn't come for this purpose. I came to show you a better way, a more excellent way. I came to show you this way of love. I mean, what did Jesus teach? He said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Well, who is persecuting them? The Romans were persecuting them. It said that if someone hits you on the cheek, turn the other cheek as well. If somebody takes your coat, you know, give them another piece of clothes. He said if somebody commands you to carry their pack a mile, which, by the way, the Roman soldiers were able to do, they could insist that you carry their pack one mile, and a lot of Jews would probably do it, but not go one inch more. He said, go ahead and carry it too. I have a feeling the people who heard Jesus tell that story said, you know, Jesus, those are, those are nice words. Nice words. Beautiful words. Good stuff. But surely you don't really expect us to love Rome. I mean, only a lunatic would command us to love Rome. And we can't love Rome. But friends, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. That's the same thing he tells us today when he says, you've got to love these people. You go, well, okay, Pastor, that was a nice sermon, but you didn't really mean us, did you? I mean, he wasn't really talking to me, was he? But that's exactly what he was saying. He said, love even Rome, because Rome and her mighty army have seen the power of the sword, but Rome has not seen the power of love. Show them love. See, Israel had a wonderful opportunity to show Rome something new, but because they didn't understand, because they completely misunderstood the mission of Jesus Christ, Jesus sat on that donkey in the midst of that parade, looks at Jerusalem, and he cries. He cries over them because the opportunity, as the word says here, would be taken away and they would never, ever have it again. These were his people. These were God's chosen people. God had loved these people. God had taken them out of bondage in Egypt. He had taken them through the wilderness. He provided food and water. He had marched them into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But they just didn't understand and because of that, Jesus wept. I can imagine a real big contrast that day for Jesus. As Jesus sits here, overlooking Jerusalem, on this donkey, he could see ahead of him, because it was so large, he could see the towering temple of God silhouetted against the sky. You can almost picture it out in that picture. But beyond that, Jesus, if you caught it, is really talking about the future. He already sees the days when the Roman legions, under the leadership of a guy named Titus, would circle and surround Jerusalem. They would build up these embankments that he talked about. He would see the temple stones being taken down one by one, and the whole city level, not one stone left upon the other. 
He could see the bodies in the street and the blood running down in gutters as thousands of people were slaughtered in the temple and as many bodies lay there because they were starved to death by the Romans. Because the Romans wanted them to surrender. And all of this happened, why? Because they did not recognize the Messiah when he came. I mean, just imagine how different their lives would have been. How different the history of Israel would be if they had only recognized who this was on this donkey on Palm Sunday. Now, if you look at the other writings about this, in Matthew, Matthew adds something that's not in this story, but he says that as Jesus sat there and wept, he used these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks beneath the wings, but you would not come. Now, today, you and I, just like the city of Jerusalem, have gathered here in this place, God's house, not just because God lives on Texas Boulevard, I mean, I have a feeling God lives all over the world. But we find ourselves in the presence of God. I wonder what God would say today as he looked at the faces who are gathered here this morning. Does he see people who are so concerned and so worried about so many things? Worried about taxes. Worried about jobs. Worried about job security, worried about their health, or worried about the lack of health. Would he look out and see the faces of people who are so busy doing things here and there, so busy that they don't have time to bother or consider those things that are eternally important? Would he see, as he looked at the faces gathered here today, people who recognize him for who he is, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Friends, when he turns and looks into our lives, I wonder, would he weep again? Or would he have an expression of joy on his face and would stand there with his arms outstretched and we would hear him say, well done. Good job, faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You know what today is besides Palm Sunday? April Fool's Day. April Fool's Day. I think April Fool's Day is a good day to begin Holy Week. Actually, I have no problem with Jesus being an April Fool. You see, in the Middle Ages, they used to have a fool. King would ask the fool to come out, the court jester. And the fool played an important role. He made people think. He challenged people. And he made, he made them or forced them to look into a deeper reality. That's exactly what Jesus does. He makes people think. Which way are you going to go? Who are you going to follow? What are you going to do? He challenges us. And he takes us into a deeper reality. You know, the Apostle Paul knew all about foolishness. 
He knew all about foolishness because of his own experience. I mean, his conversion from being a persecutor to a preacher must have seemed pretty foolish to his friends. And some of you know the words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, here we are, fools for Christ's sake. Any fools for Jesus today? Earlier, he even talks about the foolishness of the cross. He says, while Jews demand miracles and Greeks look for wisdom, here we are preaching Christ crucified. Those words sound familiar? We have repeated those every Wednesday night through Lent. It says, to the Jews, an obstacle they cannot get over. To the pagans, it's foolishness. But then he goes on, he says, but to those who have been called a Christ, who is the power and the wisdom of God. See, in his wisdom, Jesus chose to be a fool so that God's love might triumph in his foolishness. See, all the love in this world cannot equal the love that you and I can see in that cross. God's kingdom of love is ushered in by such foolishness as Jesus offering himself by his preparedness to be a fool. But I don't mind being called a fool for Jesus. You know, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, those of us who call ourselves believers, who follow Jesus, I hope we look foolish this Holy Week. You know, a lot of people are going to look at you, and if they know you at all, are probably going to wonder, maybe, why you have so many services this week. Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Some of them will kind of laugh even at the celebrations we have of ancient services. The commemoration of the Lord's Supper. That service of darkness. When the door slams shut at the end. And you know there will be more than a few who will ridicule our belief. They will not understand that this week, Holy Week, is what is at the heart of our faith. It's at the heart of our love. I mean, there'll be a lot of people, not just in Texas, Canada, but there are a lot of people in this world who look at Christians, and they will think we are nothing more than April fools. And if so, we keep good company. I mean, for everything actually seemed very foolish and lost on Good Friday. One of my favorite Christian singer-songwriters is Michael Card. If I had that great ability today, I would sing this song to you. But he sums up kind of what I've been talking about today in this great song called God's Own Fool. Seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to man, he must have seemed out of his mind. Even his family said he was mad, and the priests said a demon's to blame. But God, in the form of this angry young man, could not have seemed perfectly sane. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream, and you'll have the faith his first followers had and you'll feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger 
to say you must know, find the courage to say I believe, for the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. We, in our foolishness, thought we were wise. He played the fool and he opened our eyes. We, in our weakness, believed we were strong. He became helpless to show we were wrong. So we followed God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable. Come, be a fool as well. Amen. Let's stand for our closing blessing and our closing song. <coughs> May God the Father who loves us from all eternity, 